the eyes of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 starting today all the way through till Easter Sunday. I look forward to being able to share some of this with you. We'll cover topics like is the resurrection essential? When is the resurrection? Baptism of the dead. Paul talks about baptizing people on behalf of dead people. That'll be an interesting Sunday. Um, the resurrection body, and then, of course, the victory that we have over the grave in Jesus. So we look forward to sharing some of that with you. Um, our text for today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Before we get to that, before I forget, um, there are some more of those uh, faith pledge cards for our missions conference. If you would like to fill one of those out, I know a number of people have already turned those in. Uh, but it, over the coming weeks, if you want to turn one of those in, just drop in the offering plate um, any of the next number of weeks, we'd be happy for you to do that. Those cards are in the back next to the offering plate. There's probably some sprinkled around in the lobby as well. Our text for today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be reading verses 3 and 4. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 3. Here we go. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Um, so First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, I want to go back to the beginning of chapter 15, uh, starting at verse 1. That's where we're going to pick up and we'll work our way toward what we just read. He says in verse... Uh, Verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, that is fellow Christians, of the gospel I preached to you. Paul says, which you received and in which you now stand. So Paul acknowledges that these Corinthians that he's writing to, that they agree with the gospel, that they stand on the gospel, that they, Paul knows that they have come to believe in the gospel. This group of people that he's writing to are not people who are on the fence. They're not people who are um, kind of stepping back and just um, checking this thing out called Christianity, but they have actually made the decision to follow Jesus themselves. So with this opening line of the letter, chapter 15 and verse 1, Paul is simply acknowledging that the Corinthians are Christians. Verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I myself received. With that phrase of first importance, Paul is saying that central to the gospel message is what he's getting ready to share, that it's something that is very essential. It's an essential component of the gospel itself. Namely, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, plus, verse 4, that he was buried plus that he was raised on the third day, also in accordance with the scriptures. Got a slide for you here, just shows these three things that Paul just pointed out. Paul's saying here in these two verses that central to the gospel message of first importance, central to the gospel message are these three concepts, that Christ died on the cross, that he was buried in the tomb, and that three days later he rose from the grave. Now those are not the only essential components uh, there's a danger here, uh, and, and I've seen this play itself out in the modern church, is that some pastors, some Bible teachers want to say, look, that's the gospel. That's the core of the gospel. That's the only thing that's really essential. That's the only thing that's really necessary. In other words, they'll throw out the sinlessness of Christ. They'll throw out the divinity of Christ, that Christ was God in the flesh. They'll throw out the authority of God's word. Friends, there are other things that are essential to the core of the gospel. Paul is just saying that this sets right at the middle of it, at the heart of it all, but it's not the only thing that is essential. He uses the words of first importance. Um, and, and so his point there is, again, that Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ rose again. If you miss the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, then you pretty much just gut the gospel 
of, of, of all of its weight, of all of its authority. Uh, Jesus just becomes a guru. Jesus becomes a, a, a moral teacher who's trying to help you and I get along in a tough, tough world. And so um, this is of first importance, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Paul also says that these events were predicted in the scriptures. That's what he says, or what he means when he says, in accordance with the scriptures. I don't have time this morning, we'll do this in successive weeks, to go back into the Old Testament and look at, hey, look, where was Christ talked about in the Old Testament, uh, his death? Where was it talked about where he was buried? Where was it talked about that he would rise again from the dead in the Old Testament? And we'll do that in successive weeks. Um, let's take a time out here, though, for just a second and talk about the information that Paul is about to share. Beginning in verse 5, Paul gives a list of persons who saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. And he's going to report that list pretty much in order of their seeing him. And so at the top of that list is the Apostle Peter. Uh, Paul does this in an attempt to, shore, to try to shore up any doubt that might be creeping in about the validity of the resurrection account. Because let's face it, coming back from the dead, this is not something that we see all that often. Uh, this would be a very uncommon occurrence, even in Paul's day. Um, and so for the rational mind, that may be a kind of a difficult pill for any of us to swallow. So Paul knows that there are skeptics out there. He knows that there are antagonists out there who like to poke holes in the faith of Christians, who are bent on trying to destroy the confidence that Christians have in these things that we hope for and these things that we believe. And so one of the areas that they attack is the unbelievability, the supernatural nature of this dead person, this corpse, coming back to life. And so by pointing back to all of these eyewitnesses, that's what we're getting ready to read, eyewitness number one, Peter, eyewitness number two, and so on down the line, that the resurrection of Jesus was verified by literally hundreds of people, including Paul himself. You say, well, why isn't Paul giving similar evidence of the death of Jesus? Well, that's because people die all the time. Nobody was challenging that Jesus had died. Uh, tens of thousands of people, perhaps, witnessed Jesus hanging there on the cross. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people all throughout Israel knew about the fact that Jesus had died on the cross. That wasn't something that was up for dispute. You say, well, why, aren't you, why isn't Paul giving evidence about the burial of Jesus? Again, the Jewish people themselves, the Jewish doctors of the law themselves, saw to it that there was a guard placed at Jesus' tomb. They knew that the body of Jesus had been buried in that tomb. Again, that was not something that was up for dispute. Um, all of those are natural occurrences, much more easily understood and believed. Again, people die every day, and there are graveyards full of the dead. It is not unreasonable to believe that Jesus died or that he was buried. But the claim that he rose from the dead, well, naturally, people kind of hit that one with their eyebrows raised and with some hesitation. So Paul mounts a defense of this claim by presenting some compelling evidence. And again, this is of first importance. This is central to the gospel itself. It, and this evidence he gives verifies that Jesus indeed did rise from the dead. The compelling evidence that he points to are the eyewitnesses' account of the risen Christ. Let's take a look. Uh, he says, verse 5, uh, Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then Jesus appeared to the twelve. That's the designation. There was only 11 of them at the time. But that was the designation that was given to Jesus' disciples. He's referring to the twelve minus Judas. Verse 6. And then Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Paul says, most of whom have fallen asleep. So Paul's saying at the time that he writes this, uh, many of the people who saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, many of them have gone on to be with the Lord. Many of those 500 eyewitnesses have died. 
but some of them at the time he writes are still alive. Verse 7, then Jesus appeared to James, that's Jesus' own brother, it's different than the James that was one of the disciples, one of the disciples was actually martyred, he was the first of the martyrs um, of the disciples, and then uh, this James is James the Lord's brother who didn't come to belief in Christ until he saw his dead brother back to life. And he gave his life to Jesus and followed after Jesus then. Still in verse 7, then to all the apostles, this would include people like uh, Paul, people like Barnabas, that sort. Verse 8, last of all, the last person to see the risen Christ, at least at the writing of this letter, was Paul himself. Paul describes himself as one untimely born. He appeared also to me. And that happened on the road to Emmaus. Paul is riding on the road to Emmaus to go persecute more Christians. He sees a blinding light from heaven. He's knocked off his horse. He says, who are you, Lord? He recognizes that this is God talking to him. And Jesus responds back to him and says, I'm the one that you are persecuting. Remember, the point of all this is to give evidence that the resurrection of Jesus Christ really did happen. That a dead man did the unthinkable. And he came back to life. This is essential, of first importance to the gospel. Um, he didn't come back to life seconds after his heart had stopped beating. Nobody jumped in there and started doing chest compressions. He didn't revive in a boat after a drowning accident. There was no AED equipment nearby. Rather, he came back to life days later. Three days later, in fact. Three days after his body had been laid in the tomb, rigor mortis had set in. His heart had stopped long ago. Organs were no longer functioning. Gaping holes were still in his hands and feet. A spear wound was, was through his side. And that lifeless, broken corpse was imbued again with the breath of life. Unthinkable, unbelievable for a secular, onlooking world. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul reminds us that between Easter morning and Pentecost, from the time Jesus resurrected from the dead until he ascended back up to the Father in heaven, um, Jesus was interacting with people. Jesus was having meals with people. He talked with people. These were all of the eyewitnesses, Paul says, in case you have any doubt. Re uh, remember the eyewitnesses. Remember their testimony. He's saying this to the church in Corinth. Um, friends, in any court of law, eyewitness testimony is called admissible evidence. Right? It's some of the strongest evidence that any attorney can bring to help prove their case. The validity and strength of eyewitness testimony is as old as the court system itself. It is strong evidence, admissible evidence. Whole court cases are built on the testimony of eyewitnesses. I've got a mathematical formula for you here. It's called Bayes' Theorem. Bayes' theorem is used to calculate probability. It's something that a lot of actuarials, I don't know if you've ever heard of an actuarial before, but an actuarial is somebody, we have one here. We have, an actuarial is somebody who basically helps insurance companies figure out what the coming year or coming year's worth of claims might be. And so they help them get a sense of what they need to set their rates at, and so they can be competitive um, in the coming year with, against other competitors. Um, and so Bayes' theorem is one of those things that helps figure out probability. What can we expect based on patterns of the past? How might that play out into the future? Well, a mathematician by the fellow by the name of Dr. John DePoe, who teaches at Western Michigan University. Okay, we still got that up there. The P represents probability. The A and the B are the variables. Um, here's what Dr. Do uh, what he decided to do was to calculate the probability that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And here's his quote, Dr. Um, DePoe. He writes, 
the effects of multiple independent testimony on the posterior probability, probability again being the P, um, of the formula there, the effects of multiple independent testimony on the posterior probability of this event are striking. Given a sufficient number of moderately reliable independent witnesses testifying that the event occurred, the posterior probability of the event will go up exponentially and will become arbitrarily close to certainty. And I know y'all, yeah, of course, right? Um, it was like an eight or nine page article. It was quite interesting. But nevertheless, here's what that guy just said. Let me boil all that down, okay? The more eyewitnesses you have, this is what he's saying, the more eyewitnesses you have of Jesus' resurrection uh, corroborating the story, the more reliable the story becomes. So Dr. John DePoe looked in scriptures and he looks at the report of scriptures and he says he, he calculated 520 independent people laid eyeballs on the resurrected Jesus at minimum of 520 uh, people, independent people, people who stepped forward and said, I saw Jesus. People who said, I met Jesus, resurrected from the dead. I put my hand on his shoulder. I looked into his eyes. He looked back into my eyes. I heard him speak. I saw him walk. I'm telling you, Jesus is back from the dead. He's risen. 520 minimum, such counts. And Dr. DePoe, with his mathematical equation, uh, says that that testimony of Jesus risen from the dead is close to certain, based on the fact that there's so many eyewitnesses of his resurrection. You say, well, Gordon, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, you are, sometimes, you know, you present this stuff, but you also sometimes just miss the obvious. And the obvious is, couldn't all of these people have gotten together and lied? <laughs> right? Couldn't they have just said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to play a great big hoax on everybody, uh, because we really want for Jesus to be the way to get to heaven, and we want everything that he taught to really be true, and so we'll just make this up, and we'll all agree to share this story, to tell this story that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Gordon, isn't that possible? Well, friends, the answer is no. That's not possible. In fact, it's impossible, and the reason that it's impossible is because of the martyrdom of so many of those eyewitnesses. And this is the second piece of compelling evidence that I present to you, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. You'll note that no eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection ever recanted their testimony. That's remarkable. In fact, <clears throat> most of them ended up dying being executed rather than recant. James, for example, was martyred by King Herod in Acts chapter 12. Stephen was martyred in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 7. Thomas was martyred in India. Philip was martyred in Turkey. Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia. The Apostle Paul was beheaded by Emperor Nero in 68 AD. Nero also crucified the Apostle Peter upside down in Rome at a place today that is known as St. Peter's Square. But it wasn't just the Apostles. Thousands, I'm sorry, hundreds, if not thousands of eyewitnesses gave their lives rather than recant their testimony. I've got a little painting picture here with a quote from a historian from the second century, fell by the name of Tacitus. And here's what Tacitus writes. He says, Christians were set on fire, were crucified or set on fire, so that when darkness came, they burned like torches in the night. End of quote. Friends, listen. People do not allow themselves to be burned at the stake for something that is a scam, for something that they know to be a lie. I mean, sooner or later, someone, the law of self-preservation is going to kick in, right? Somebody's going to crack. 
Somebody's going to break. Somebody's going to say, I don't know what you're talking about. This whole thing is made up. I mean, somebody always turns. Somebody says, I don't want to be impaled on a post. I don't want to be set on fire. I don't want to be crucified. But it's interesting that Peter and James and Paul and hundreds of early Christians who saw the resurrection of Jesus did not recant their story. Why? Because Jesus really did rise from the dead. And I have to think, That part of the reason why the Lord Jesus, why God the Father allowed for these early Christians to be martyred is so that centuries later we could look back and say, this wasn't a hoax. These people weren't making this stuff up. They were willing to put everything on the line in order to defend their testimony. All right, well, that's our treatment of this uh, opening part of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so that means it's time for us to stop here and ask the question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to your life and mine? Um, If you have your Bibles open or you can follow along with me on the screen, I'll flip over to Hebrews chapter 11 real quick. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Um, I've got this verse in both the ESV and then just a second in the NIV. Um, The writer defines faith this way. So he defines faith and he goes on to talk about the faith of Abraham, the faith of Noah, the faith of a whole bunch of people from the Old Testament. But he defines faith this way here at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 11. He writes, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Typically, we don't use words like assurance and conviction in the same sentence with faith. I mean, faith is supposed to be, right, this blind leap into some irrational void. Well, I just, I'm going to have faith and I'm just going to hope this is right. I'm going to hope that Jesus resurrected himself from the dead. But that's not how the writer defines faith. In the NIV, it says that it writes it this way. It says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Again, typically we don't use words like being sure and being certain to describe or define what faith is. Faith is supposed to be some blind leap, right? But friends, that is not what we have in Christianity. That is not the witness and the testimony and the evidence that Jesus has left for us. He has given us verifiable evidence, courtroom admissible evidence. Bayes' theory can even confirm, right, what the Lord Jesus is telling us here. Friends, this is not myth. This is not legend. Jesus really did rise from the dead. Now, what difference does this make to your life and mine? Number one... It sets Christianity apart in the broad landscape of world religions. I'll say that for you again. It sets Christianity apart in the broad landscape of world religions. When you set Christianity alongside all the different religions of the world, the fact that our Savior rose from the dead makes Christianity unique amongst all the world religions. For example, I got a picture for you here. This is um, a site in Medina, Saudi Arabia. There is a mosque, and it's built on top of the home of Muhammad, the founder of Islam. Um, Muhammad was buried in the floor of his home, and so the Muslims built this mosque on top of it. My point is, if you want to go visit the grave that is occupied of this religious leader, that's where you go. Another uh, picture for you here is of Mary Baker Eddy's grave. You say, Mary Baker Eddy, I'm not familiar with that gal. Uh, she was, I believe, late 1800s, early 1900s. She's the founder of the Christian science religion. 
Um, they threw the word Christian in there, kind of tried to hybrid some things together with Christianity. But basically, she said, hey, I know how to get to heaven. And it's not through Jesus Christ. Uh, you can follow his moral teachings, but you don't get to heaven through Jesus Christ. And um, you can go visit her grave as well. Got another uh, picture for you here. This is one is of the burial site for the Buddha. He was cremated, and his ashes were spread over several sites. There were temples that were built on each of those spots where his ashes were spread. And this particular site's kind of funny. Maybe not. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. This is where his tooth is buried. So, <laughs> I don't know. Anyhow, so he's got a tooth buried here. And so there's this temple that's built on top of it. People can go there, and they make offerings, make sacrifices. They can spend, burn some incense. They can pray. Um, Buddha was actually um, a fellow by the name of Siddhartha. I don't know if y'all are familiar with his story. It's a fascinating story. He kind of loses his mind halfway along the way and then arrives at, quote-unquote, enlightenment. And you can read the story of Buddha in a book called Siddhartha by a fellow named Herman Hesse that came out maybe 100 years ago. And it's a fascinating read about his life. But again, at the end of the day, you can go visit his tooth or his ashes. Next slide. Uh, this is the burial site of a fellow by the name of L. Ron Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard was an atheist. He said, and I quote, The cosmos is all there is, all there ever was, and all there ever will be. So he was a materialist. He was a naturalist. He looked at the natural world and said, that's it. There's nothing beyond the natural world. So when he died, he asked for his ashes to be sprinkled out over the Pacific Ocean. This is just a random picture, right? I don't know this is the spot. You know, anyhow. I just found a picture of the Pacific Ocean. But anyhow, that's, that's where he's buried. Um, and I know what you're thinking. Hey, he's an atheist. What does he do? Why, why does he belong alongside these other world religions? Well, again, um, if you want to follow L. Ron Hubbard, this is your future. Right? This is your purpose in life. To live, be conscious, and then you die. They blow the candle out, and you have your ashes sprinkled, and that's the end of you. This is what he taught. Life is just meaningless. Life is therefore cruel. Here's another grave site. This is a spot where Confucius, where his body lays. Confucius was an enlightened soul, and he believed he knew the way to heaven to a happy afterlife. But again, he's still in the grave. Got another picture for you here. This is the grave site of Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormons. This is at the Smith family home site in Illinois. Smith claimed that he knew the way to get to heaven. His confession of faith was, this is a confession of faith of people who are Church of the Latter-day Saints, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, borrowing that from Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, that God raised him from the dead, and then they add that Joseph Smith was his prophet, and then they add, and that Brigham Young was his successor, because Brigham Young wanted to get in on the, right? I mean, just being honest. Right? So Brigham Young, he was the successor of Joseph Smith, but he wanted to get in on the confession of faith, so it's added to the confession of faith as well. But again, you can visit the grave of Joseph Smith, you can visit the grave of um, Brigham Young. Uh, friends, we could go on and on, mm, identifying world leader, people, or world religion leaders, um, but the point is that there is only one religious teacher, got one more slide for you here, who has claimed that he knew the way to heaven and proved it by rising from the dead. All these other graves, all these other burial sites, those tombs are full, but the tomb of Christ is empty. Praise the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? Don't you think that Muhammad would have loved to have come back from the dead and said, here I am. See, I told you that I knew the way 
to get to ha- a happy afterlife. I knew the way. to get. Don't you think Mary Baker Eddy would love to come back out of that grave and tell everybody, prove to everybody that she was right all along? Wouldn't Confucius or Buddha or any of these others love to be able to do that? But there's only one who has done that. Friends, we do not serve a dead Savior. We serve a risen Savior. He was telling the truth. We can know that he was telling the truth because our Savior of first importance rose from the dead. And this sets Christianity apart in the broad landscape of all of the world religions. Our Savior rose from the dead. None of those others can claim that about their leader. We have a saying around here, perhaps you've heard me say it before, if you follow a dead Savior, expect to end up just like him. Perhaps you're here today and you've never made a decision to enter into a real and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You've asked yourself, Why Christianity amongst all these other options that are out there? Why pursue a relationship with Jesus Christ? Why would I want to enter into a relationship with him? Friends, because Jesus has proved to you and I, he has proved to the world that everything he promised, that everything he said really was true. And he did this by rising from the dead. Something for you to think about. Number two, second difference this makes to your life and to mine. Number two, and I'll be short here, we're wrapping it up. Is, number two is, um, it, what the difference this means to your life and mine, is that when we visit the cemetery, when we visit the graveyard, we can do so with confidence. We can do so with confidence. Friends, the cemetery can be a place of despair. It can, let's just be honest. We miss those people, we love those people, we wish they were still in our lives today. Um, But as Christians, when we walk through the cemetery, we do not have to wonder whether or not we will see our loved ones again. We do not have to fear our own death. Instead, we know that death is just the beginning of eternal life with God, and we can be sure and we can be certain that this is the case because our Savior lives. It's as the hymn writer wrote, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives... All fear is gone. Because he holds the future, life is worth the living just because he lives. Friends, when we go to the cemetery, typically we stand there and we look down. And we think about that person whose body has been laid to rest in that spot, um, in the grave. Instead, friends, we ought to also be looking up, realizing, remembering that our loved ones are with the Lord. This may be the resting place of their physical body, but the person, our loved one, is actually right now in the presence of God above. Jesus made us this promise, John 3, 16, and I'll close with this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting or eternal life. Friends, Jesus proved that he can keep his promise when he rose from the dead. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, thank you for speaking to us today from your word. Thank you for the reassurance uh, that the grave is not something that is final. That Lord, uh, this thing we call Christianity, that we follow, that we have placed our faith and our trust for eternity in the work that you accomplished on the cross. God, that 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 has teeth. Lord, that that is verifiable. That these promises are not just out there, that we don't have a hope-so faith, but that, Lord, we have a no-so faith. 
one that is filled with certainty, one that is filled with assurance. God, as we gather around this table now to be reminded of your broken body and of your shed blood, Lord, fill us again with the hope that, Lord, your tomb is empty. You shed your blood, your body was broken, and you were placed in the tomb. But, Lord, that was not the end of the story. We thank you for that. Holy Spirit, have this time. Work in our hearts, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.